Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that won't shy away from asking the biggest questions in the property world. And today it is definitely one of those. Where in the world is the best place to open a shop? If you're looking at the fundamentals in terms of the numbers, obviously London, New York stand out. They're massive retail markets. And once you've decided where to open, what sort of store works best these days? Online has become so easy for consumers that if retailers do not offer some form of experiential inside their store, there's less of a reason for a consumer to go to a retail store. I'm Guy Ruddle and with me for some serious retail therapy are Larry Brennan, who is Savile's Head of European Retail Agency. Hello, Larry. Welcome Hi. to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You're based in Dublin, but travel where mainly? Uh, mainly around Europe. Marie Hickey is a director in the Commercial Research Department. She specialises in retail and hotels and is no stranger to Real Estate Insights. Welcome back to the podcast, Marie. How have you been? Very well. Good to be back. Good stuff. And Laura Salisbury-Jones is a director in the Cross-Border Retail retail team. So you do sort of roughly the same as Larry, but you you have a sort of slightly wider remit, do you, Laura? Similar to Larry in that I do Europe, but cover Asia and North America as well, yes. So you're working twice as hard as him. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so before we get to the question of where is the very best place to open a shop these days, can we just talk sort of generally about retail? Everyone talks about retail being in trouble and all that sort of stuff, but is it really as, as bad as everybody is, is making out, Larry? Uh, I think the industry is in is, is doing pretty well. Uh, the challenge is the relationship, perhaps, between the property business and the, the retail business. Um, retail itself is growing. Consumer spend is growing globally. Retailers are performing very well. Um, but there's ones with historic problems, uh, a lot of it real estate related. And when you say real estate related, are the expectations between landlords and, and occupiers, Marie, are they very different these days? Are they, are they you know, far apart? I think, they are. I think the fundamental challenge for retail at the moment is for retailers to really understand what consumers want and probably for consumers to understand what they want from the retail experience. There's definitely a move to have the retail experience or the good retail experience be more experiential, more brand driven. Um, And I think some retailers are definitely recognising that and reflecting that in terms of what they're doing with their stores. But, you know, there are still some retailers out there who are still trying to find their feet. So it's less about, I think, the relationship between the retailers and the landlords and more about retailers trying to really work out what they want to do with their stores. Laura, you're nodding. I just think that landlords also need to be a bit more flexible with retailers. You know, gone are the days of retailers taking space um, and um, compromising on on store space. You know, um, there is more availability on the high street and therefore landlords need to be more flexible in terms of the space that they're providing. Um, and retailers, quite rightly, are, I guess, a bit more selective. So it's a bit of a buyer's. The summary of all that is it's a bit of a buyer's market at the moment. I think that's fair to say. I think Marie's point is, is well made that uh, the customer base is completely changing. Sure, the, wor- the world is changing. So retailers trying to understand how their, their customers have shifted and how they re-engage with those those customers. Yeah, that's a challenge. And that means we're getting corporate failures and businesses uh, uh, failing on an ongoing basis, which results in arguably less demand on the high street, which arguably means that rents begin to fall as there's not that competitive edge. Also, the whole uh, question of online, like, you know, and your, your, your sales diverting online. But the point I was trying to make at the start is the total volume of sales is still increasing and mm-hmm. is still growing. 
It's just where they're actually coming yeah. from. And retailers definitely still want stores. I mean, a great example, there was an interview with the Everlane CEO a couple of weeks ago, and he said that to be an online-only retailer is not profitable. And as a result, they've been expanding their physical stores. So having a store is still really important to retailers. I think what the challenge is at the moment is just working out the best place to have that store and what that store experience is like for the consumer. But having a store is still, you know, high on the agenda, I think, for many retailers. So let's answer that question of where the best place in the world to open a shop is. So my my first sort of assumption is sort of the great shopping cities are London and New York. Is that true? Or am I I being a little bit parochial if I say that? Well, sorry, I... Go back again and say the best place to open a shop is where you get the best engagement with your customers. I know it's a pretty glib yeah. answer, but yeah. that is the answer. It's, it's very, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about engagement with your, your customer base. And coming back to your point about online retailers and uh, are, are they are they better on the net? No, they're not. They need to have a, a physical presence as well and a physical engagement. So very hard to pick a city because... Uh, it, it's more, it's more that that connection with mm. your customer, your yeah. ever changing customer as well, which makes it even more of a challenge. Yeah, and I think, I mean, from a, obviously being the analyst, the geek, the number geek in the room, um, you're right. There is where you have that engagement, but I think if you're looking at the fundamentals in terms of the numbers, obviously London, New York stand out. They're massive retail markets, mm. particularly in the case of London. You know exposure to international tourists you know london is one of the top cities globally for international tourists so it's exposure to a wealthy domestic as well as you know a large number of visitors but um i think new york you know is similar issues to what we're seeing in london but again fabulous you know it's a really strong market fundamentally mm. is that what you said because you, when you're traveling around well, you, the, the whole of the world. You've, you're, you're just fresh back from Asia, aren't you? Yeah, Lauren? so I've just been to Seoul and Shanghai in this, the last week, um, which was just like retail on another level, I must say. Um, you know, seeing the retail in Shanghai in particular was just, you know, incredible in terms of the number of stores that brands actually open there. Um, but just going back to um, London and New York, I mean, they're both, you know, huge, huge markets. And interestingly, looking at the likes of kind of Oxford Street and Fifth Avenue, they are quite similar but, you know, they are different as well. You know, Fifth Avenue has luxury and mass market. Oxford Street is just pure mass market. So there are differences between the two markets, albeit that they attract a huge number of consumers. I don't shop in New York very often. It's, it's just not something I do on a regular you basis. Should. So, yeah, you yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, Mrs. R says I should as well. Uh, or we should. Uh, is, does Fifth Avenue cover everything? It covers everything, but um, I must say it is defined, as in Saks Fifth Avenue acts as kind of a border between mass and luxury, whereas in London you have three key streets, which are Oxford Street for mass market, High Street brands, Bond Street for luxury, and then Regent Street is kind of attracting the international aspirational brand and is increasingly doing so. So I guess you have like a triangle in London and in New York you you have, you know, two two or three key streets and then the different pockets of retail as well. And and in terms of property, retail property, and well, we're on London and New York. What's happening? Are, are, are lots of properties coming up, uh, you know, for to, for occupiers, or is it quite a static market? 
No, I, I think uh, in terms of turnover, and uh, Laura would be more connected with the London market than I would be, but certainly in terms of, of you can see walking down Oxford Street, you can see availability, you can see vacancy, which is a a pretty rare occurrence, I would say, historically. Um, but uh, as a result, vacancy leads to turnover, uh, changing shop fronts, uh, a, a drive. One of the things you talk about, Regent Street, and again, as I understand, but Regent Street is leases are getting shorter on Regent, mm. Regent Street and a real drive to get um, a, a change in those occupiers, which is great because it gives vibrancy and... Um, Yeah, you you need a bit of freshening up, don't you? The the, the whole street always needs a bit of freshening up. Microsoft has opened, Mm. you know, on the uh, Oxford. I mean, that getting too parochial on on Oxford Circus, corner of Oxford Street and Regent Street, and and something like that makes a difference, doesn't it? I think brand demand is changing as well. You know, Oxford Street is um, still seen as the most important mass market street in London, particularly for international brands. It's you know has the largest concentration in the world, but it's not just you know it it was. And it still is very popular for fashion brands, but they're also, it's also um, attracting a number of consumer brands, like you just said, in terms of Microsoft and the likes of Dyson. So consumer brands is definitely something that Oxford Street is attracting. It's not, you know, it's not just fashion. There's other different pockets of retail that are very popular on Oxford Street now. What about the rest of Europe, Larry? Is it, do they compete in a way with London at all in terms of shopping or is it more domestic or...? Uh, sorry, absolutely. In terms of global cities, you know, whether it's London, Paris, Milan, Munich, very much so. Uh, yeah, it's, these are true international uh, locations. Marie mentioned tourism earlier on, and tourism is such a huge driver of the the retail market at the moment. Um, uh, and brands want their 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 product placed in in tourist hubs. So yeah, absolutely, they're there, and uh, you know, these brands want to be seen to be located in the best pitches of those cities. Um, do they compete or is it part of a, a, a joined up strategy for the key brands? I think that's probably more the way yeah. uh, I, I would view it. Um, but yeah, Europe's also a pretty dynamic place at the moment. Uh, a lot of the same challenges that are there in terms of business failures. So turnover, lots and lots and lots happening and a lot of changes on the streets. And there's some really interesting markets, I think, in Eastern and Central Europe. We spend a lot of time talking about the big cities, but you know, there's some you know, Asian brands that are probably looking at Central and Eastern European cities as more favourable because, you know, young populations, less competition from European retailers, the costs of entry into those markets as well, lower than some of the other bigger, better known cities. So I think, yeah, in terms of Europe as a whole, there's some really interesting pockets that that offers, you know, some good opportunities different types of retailers. So we sort of talked about London and New York and, and, and various things. We talked about Europe. We mentioned briefly, Laura, that, that Shanghai, because you, you've been in that part of the world recently, more broadly in Asia and China. You know, everyone talks about China. It, what's happening there? Is, is, is that just a massive growth market? Luxury brands in particular are focusing on China at the moment. I think... Um, you know, this is for a number of reasons, but due to the fact that quite a number of cities are becoming elevated and local spend and demand for luxury are both up, um, meaning. So, what do you mean by elevated? In terms of um, luxury retail, oh, okay. um, sorry, supply yeah. in terms of store numbers, mm-hmm. um, and also there's a there's been a change and a, a relaxation of um, luxury tax in China, which means that Chinese you know domestic spend is has increased. There is no need to travel to spend. They're still traveling, but they're not 
spending as much on luxury as perhaps they they have done. 50% of Chinese luxury spend will take place in China by 2025. So that just shows you the growth in that sector between now and then. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And what about other parts, Marie? Other parts of that of of I, that world? Yeah, I, th- I think India generally is a massive opportunity market. Uh, there's some similarities to China. You've obviously got massive population, growing middle class. I think the levels of consumption or the demands for luxury are slightly different. But saying that, you know, big opportunity for retailers to get in into that market, particularly you know, focused on the sort of the key top tier cities. Two other sort of global markets I would probably mention also are Australia, which we're seeing quite a number of requirements um, for Australia at the moment, purely because it's an underdeveloped market with increased um, levels of spend um, that's been seen over the last five years. And the other one is Canada. Um, oh, really? And like Marie was saying earlier, in terms of Eastern Europe being quite popular for um Asian brands looking to expand with less competition. Um, you know, Canada's a really interesting market for Asian brands because there's a number of Chinese that live in the likes of Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Um, so we are actually seeing a number of Asian brands looking at expanding into Canada and North America before Europe. So can we talk about types of shop that work? I mean, Marie, you sort of touched on it earlier with the sort of retailers' theatre type thing that what do we call it experiential yeah no it's a terrible word isn't it well it's sort of a terrible (laughs) word but it's okay i think we can live with it what does it what does it really mean i think it's really about aligning i think the online and physical i think as consumers we really like the convenience of online shopping you can go onto a retailer's website it probably has all your details already uploaded you can buy something and have it you know, in your basket within a couple of minutes. I think it's aligning that seamlessness that you have online into the physical store, but also adding that extra theatre experience and giving you the reason why you want to go there. Um, I think some retailers have definitely nailed it or they're getting close to nailing that experience. I mean, the Apple, if you think about Apple when they first started, I think the experience, the theatre of Apple, and if you think about how the stores are designed, um, is a great example Yeah, of good experience. Laura, you're nodding again. <laughs> I think that online has become so easy for consumers that if retailers do not offer some form of experiential inside their store, there's less of a reason for a consumer to go to a retail store. Therefore, they really need to change in order to attract consumers. Yeah. Um, then they need to join it up, though, as well. I mean, you know that that uh, I, I'm. I was talking to a company not long ago who, whose whole business is is linking up online with with the store, so you can start your shopping experience online if you like, and end up in the store, and the store knows you from your online activity in the store, and and, and so on, or the other way around. Mm. Is that happening properly yet? Do you think? I was speaking to Selfridges this week and 60% of their uh, customers um, shop online and look online before coming in store and purchasing. So there is definitely a relationship. I think you need to have both. Mm. And I think in China, who probably at the forefront of that, where both the physical retail and the online probably emerge both at the same time. And it's very, you know, talking to our colleagues there in China, they say, you know, a lot of people go around the shops looking at items, but they probably will never buy anything direct from there. They'll scan a code and get the information they need, but the eventual purchase might happen 
somewhere else. But wouldn't have happened if they hadn't gone around the shops, had the experience, done the scanning of the code, etc., etc. Yeah. I mean, there's a great stat I'll throw in. So there was a study carried out in the States last year. Um, and what they found was when the retailer opened a new store, within the catchment of that new store, there was on average a 37% increase in traffic to that retailer's website. Where they closed a store, there was a decline. So it just shows how important the store is, I think, in driving both that online relationship as well as the physical. Talking of stats, I think we're sort of drawing to a close in this conversation, but as I'm sure you've been warned, you can't come onto the Real Estate Insights podcast without coming up with a Savile standout statistic. So a little something that's sort of, uh, you know, well, basically what Marie's just done, get people to go, wow. Uh, who wants to go? If everyone's ready. Who wants to go first? Let's. Well, Marie's just done one. So what, Laura, why don't you start with your Savile standout statistic? Okay, so we were on experiential. So mine is 78% of millennials have said that they would rather spend money on experience than buying stuff in store. Uh, Larry, what's your standout statistic? Well, again, taking tourism as a as a major driver of the retail market and given that Europe is my focus um, my standout statistic is that Europe still accounts for 50% of all global international tourism arrivals so Europe is where it's at um, you can worry about Asia and North America but if you're a retailer and you want brand presence and to be exposed to a global market uh, you really do need to look at your key European cities yeah Marie Oh, another stat. <laughs> yeah, so that was a brilliant one. Can you beat the one you came up with just a minute ago? Uh, yeah, without, make, again, talk too much about the UK, I mean, obviously talking about issues here, obviously not helped by Brexit, but I think what's really interesting, London has seen more, saw more international entrance last year than any other year, and actually this year we'll probably see even more. So we're potentially going to see 60 new international brands opening their first ever store in London, so a new record. So all that talk about how it's all terrible and everything, it's just nonsense, right? That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If that's just got you intrigued about what's going on and you want to find out more, you can do so at the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. There's all sorts of stuff there about this and many, many other topics. And if you aren't already a subscriber to Real Estate Insights and would like to become one, we'd be more than happy for you to do so. And you can do that through your usual podcast provider. In the meantime, thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.